I have a confession to make. One week during quarantine, my husband and I binge-watched an entire season of the Lifetime series Married at First Sight. In case you haven't seen it, the premise of the show is that couples are paired by a team of relationship experts who supposedly are using scientific matchmaking methods, and the first time the couple meets is at the altar. Then they have eight weeks to decide if they want to stay together or get a divorce. Now, I'm not saying I have great taste in television, even at the best of times, but something about quarantine has brought out a deep love of trash. At the end of another long day of being trapped in my apartment, I crave the basest of dramas and the easiest to follow plot lines. Also, maybe it makes me and my husband feel a bit better about our own relationship. Like, we're doing okay, and we've been stuck in a house together for almost three months. These couples can't even make it eight weeks, and they get to go to work during the day and go out with friends, not to mention the free couples counseling. Psh, amateur hour. I'm Anna Rothschild, and this is Podcast 19 from 538. This week, we'll explore how much Americans trust science and scientists in the age of COVID-19. We'll also explore a potential way to monitor COVID outbreaks through the toilet bowl. But first, we're going to answer a question from one of our listeners. Hi, it's Leslie from New York. I heard recently that New York Governor Andrew Cuomo claimed that the strain of the coronavirus that was here in New York was more virulent than the strain that was on the West Coast. Uh, I've heard from some medical professionals that our strain was actually more virulent than the strain that came from China, that whatever the mutation was that happened in Europe made our strain uh, more virulent. Is this just New York exceptionalism, round 37 million, or is there something to this? Thanks. I'm not sure what Cuomo meant when he said that on May 3rd, but there has been some research on whether a more aggressive or contagious strain of the virus exists. A paper published in early March in National Science Review suggested that a mutation has created two strains of the virus and one is more aggressive than the other. And another paper, a preprint from scientists out of Los Alamos National Laboratory, suggested that there's a strain that's more transmissible. Dr. Oscar McLean, a virologist from the University of Glasgow, wrote a paper disputing the results of the former study. He and his colleagues say that just because the virus mutated doesn't mean it's more aggressive. Uh, so I think one of the things to be clear about is that lots of the times you'll see the word strain used, uh, and all that means is a genetically distinct virus, but it's sort of a bit of a loaded word that I think everyone at the moment is trying to avoid using, but it's one that's commonly used just to describe any virus that's got any mutations. So in some ways, there are definitely are lots and lots of strains. It's just that all of these uh, different strains are functionally interchangeable. Is there any sort of strict definition of a viral strain? Like, is it like a dog breed? You know what I mean? Where everything's related, but they, you can tell the difference between a poodle and, a, you know, Great Dane. Yeah, so I think there's been attempts to define strains by, uh, you know, viruses that are functionally distinct. Um, but if you read almost any paper, um, it's just any virus that's separated by any mutations. And it's, com it's sort of used a bit 
too loosely, which is normally not a problem unless you're in the middle of a global pandemic when every single thing that you write gets jumped on by thousands of people. (laughs) Right, exactly. (laughs) So, um, you know, looking at that National Science Review paper, just how different were those two types suggested by the paper? Yeah, so they were separated uh, by two mutations, um, so within a genome of uh, 30,000 nucleotides, and only one of those changed the proteins that was encoded, so really just one potentially functional mutation. That means that of the two mutations, one of them did basically nothing, and the other changed one of the virus's proteins. And it was actually one of the virus's least important proteins. What can we say about the chances that any mutation will lead to a functionally different pathogen? Uh, so predicting things ahead of time where uh, is really, 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 really kind of impossible. Um, so we know that viruses are going to accumulate lots of mutations because they're bad at replicating, and our immune system likes to try and punch holes in them by causing mutations. So we're expecting loads of mutations to occur that don't really have any functional effect, but it's impossible to predict ahead of time really uh, what those effects are going to be. So mutations aren't inherently good or bad. Some do nothing at all. But among mutations that can have an effect on human health are ones that change how aggressive or transmissible a virus is. Then there's another type of mutation, which doesn't change the virus's function per se, but changes how the virus looks to the body. Those sorts of mutations are one of the reasons you need to get a new flu shot each year. So the the focus for viruses is to be fast rather than good at replicating. So they've got their replication machinery is just faulty. Yeah, it's just speed is everything for a virus, and it's happy to pick up a few slightly costly mistakes along the way. That's speaking broadly about viruses, but compared to some other viruses, how quickly does coronavirus mutate? So it's about a third of the rate of the flu. Um, Maybe it's a little bit slower than um, some of the other um, coronaviruses, but it's it's a little bit of uncertainty in those estimates. Generally, the rule is that um, RNA viruses mutate much faster than DNA viruses. This seems to be a relatively slow RNA virus in terms of mutation rate. This coronavirus is a relatively slow one? Yeah, SARS-CoV-2. No, there was another paper pretty recently out of Los Alamos indicating that the new coronavirus had evolved to become more infectious. Um, what do you think of that paper? Uh, so I think the mutation that they talk about uh, sort of warrants some further investigation. Um, and it's something that we've seen as well. I mean, it's but the problem is, is that it again uses rise in frequency over time as the primary indicator of transmissibility. What that means is that the mutation could have affected how the virus acts, making it more easily transmitted. But it's also possible that it's just random chance that viruses with that mutation ended up infecting so many people. Yeah, exactly. So I think like this, um, so there's been some nice research uh, this week which is looking at sort of uh, those super spreader events and so like how much of transmission is being driven by one individual in this big crowd rather than everyone transmitting an equal amount. And it looks like there's huge variation in the amount that individuals are spreading and that potentially like it's mostly being driven by a small number of super spreaders. And so that's going to amplify up this effect, right? If, if a small number of individuals are really good at spreading, that's going to cause much more variation in mutation frequencies over time. Just whatever's in those individuals is going to rise in frequency. A key point is that there are also many variations within people, not just in the viruses that infect them. And those variations are both in their biology and their behavior. So it's what what are the forces that generate this uh, variation in trans- uh, transmission ac- like across people? What, what causes people to be super spreaders? 
Um, so maybe it's you know, the virus just replicates much more in them, um, and there is a much higher, much higher viral load, or is it people who are more social? Um, and I'm, it's not. I think it's going to be a combination of both. It's going to be a combination of lots of individual factors, um, but I don't think there's hugely strong evidence for what the exact driver of this is. I think it's often people make assumptions. I know that historically there are some viruses that have become less aggressive over time. I'm just wondering, are there any trends in when and how viruses mutate to become more or less aggressive? Yeah, so I think one of these things that's commonly assumed is that viruses over time become less aggressive or attenuate. Um, but there's just not hugely strong evidence that this is a like, consistent phenomenon. It's, um, it's a nice logical story, right? Viruses that kill people spread less because they're killing people and you want to keep your host alive but there's going to be huge trade-offs so a virus might need to kill people to infect someone quickly enough to you know override the effects of the immune system and get to high enough viral loads to spread so um, i mean people have been saying this about hiv for years and there's never been any particularly strong evidence that hiv is attenuating over time Um, so there's just no i don't think there's any general rule but it's just one of those things that people even some scientists sort of just assume as a given but um yeah there's there's not a formal framework as to how you expect a virus to attenuate as time goes on thank you to dr oscar mclean for speaking with us In recent weeks, the news has shown us multiple instances of people openly rejecting what scientists and doctors recommend regarding COVID-19. Protesters have gathered in large groups without masks, and a film spouting a conspiracy theory accusing the government of planning the pandemic spread across the internet. So our senior science writer, Maggie Kurth, has been looking into whether the coronavirus response has eroded the public's trust in science. So, Maggie, it feels like trust in science is at an all-time low. Is that actually the case? It is not actually the case. Um, One of the interesting things about discourse around science and politics in the U.S. is that we kind of have this constant message that there's a war on science and that trust in science has fallen. And the reality is that it has not. Um, Science has been and continues to be one of the most trusted institutions in the U.S., which is pretty significant given that trust in institutions has fallen a ton since the 1970s across the board, but not really in science. Silence has pretty much held steady in trust during that time when everything from, you know, Congress to the post office has tanked. So... I think there is this pretty big disconnect between what it feels like people are thinking and what people are telling pollsters that they're thinking. Even before COVID, where did the idea that there is low trust in science in America come from? So researchers told me that the idea is really coming from a a real place. You know, there are actually people attacking science. Um, There are actually people attacking scientific findings. But that that tends to be more political rhetoric of an elite group than it is what individual average Americans are actually thinking. The reality is that our opinions and our beliefs are not actually logical things. 
So we can simultaneously sort of buy into our political elites saying that we shouldn't trust that there is actually a pandemic happening, while at the same time we might trust scientists a lot. In the past, before COVID, what areas of science have like garnered the biggest skepticism? Predominantly, that's been something that's happened around environmental science, uh, things involving pollution, energy, particularly climate change. And climate change is kind of the big example people bring up about the idea that there is a war on science happening. But it's also a complicated case because it's also a situation where you have these documented examples of companies and individuals actively funding skepticism in the results because they have vested interest in making sure that policy changes don't happen. So it's it's a very highly politicized thing. Um, it's a thing where science has been attacked, but it's not necessarily a thing where trust in science is low among average Americans. Right now, when we're talking about skepticism in science, it's focused on medical issues. Um, how much has uh, how much have Americans um, been skeptical of of medicine in in the past before COVID? Well, there's definitely been medical skepticism in the past, at least around the issue of um, anti-vaccine uh, protesters, right? So that that's existed. But one of the things that um, the Pew Research Center told me was that we're starting to see in this case of COVID-19 partisan divide over trust in medical science, which is not normal, which is not something that they've really seen before. Um, And that does need to be kept in context, though, because when we're talking about a partisan divide, we're not talking about you know, one side losing its faith in science um, and one side not. We're talking about Democrats having coming out of the past couple of months with more trust in science and Republicans staying at about the same high levels they had been at before. I mean, all that being said, though, right, like the anti-vax movement is often associated with like fairly liberal people. Um, so it it does seem sort of like there's an unlikely alliance there kind of between past anti-vaxxers who, who might be more liberal leaning and Republicans who are often the people we're seeing out at these, you know, open up the economy again uh, rallies. Um, that is true that the anti-vax position is sort of associated with, you know, the idea of the liberal white mom that uh, doesn't want to give her kid a measles vaccine. But it's a lot more complicated than that. Um, it's probably more accurate to connect it to kind of some libertarian standpoints um, and also into some of the conspiracy theorist communities. So when you kind of take those things, uh, vaccines, anti-vaccine movement has really kind of long been something where you kind of have both sides of the partisan divide coming around so far, they run back into each other. Right. Yeah, I know that one of the major concerns um, amongst anti-vaxxers, both modern anti-vaxxers and throughout history, because it's it's been something... It's an old thing, yeah. There's often been a sort of like, my body, my choice element to it, or parents wanting to make decisions for their children's health and not be dictated by the government. Yeah, and like that, uh, that government control aspect... 
a few years ago, I did a story that was sort of looking at the history of vaccine hesitancy over the last three or four decades. And that government control aspect was a big one. And for a lot of people, for some people, it starts with doubt in medicine. For some people, it starts with doubt in government and grows in different directions from there. I know that if you look at the data, you know, there is still high trust in science, at least according to the polling that's being done. But what impact do these small but very vocal minorities of skeptics have on our COVID response? So one of the things that the researchers pointed out was that when it comes to COVID response, you kind of have this thing where you need normalization buy-in, right? So people aren't going to maintain social distance. They're not going to wear masks if they don't feel like it's the normal, comfortable thing to do. Like no one wants to be that one weirdo in a crowd who's not you know, who's not doing what everyone else is, right? It can be, it can be something that kind of pushes people away. And so if you have political elites who are questioning, you know, the usefulness of these things, questioning whether the virus even is a problem, then you're more likely to have more people not making the choices that need to be made to keep everyone safe. And in some parts of the country, that could end up being a majority. It could end up meaning that those safety precautions aren't being normalized or actively being normalized against. And so that can have consequences. You know, even if somebody trusts researchers, if they're not wearing their mask, that's a whole problem. If very high profile people are the ones who are, you know, spouting some of like the the skepticism, does that have an outsized impact on our response? Well, we know that political elites do have an outsized impact on how the choices and the beliefs that people have. Um, we do know also that, you know, your friends and neighbors have probably a bigger impact. And um, so it's kind of one of those things that can trickle down, but it doesn't necessarily trickle down. So it, it, it's kind of complicated. It, it's not entirely clear that just because the political elites believe something that, you know, the people who agree with them politically will do the same. But if they do, the more of your friends that believe something, the more likely you are to believe it as well. Um, well, Maggie, thank you so much for, for filling us in. I really appreciate it. Yeah, thank you for having me on. And now for a little good news. And I have to say, as someone who loves bathroom humor, this one is really up my alley. As you know, COVID-19 is a respiratory infection, but that doesn't mean the virus is only found in the nose, throat, and lungs. It's also shed when you poop. And scientists are looking into monitoring viral levels in sewage to predict when we'll see spikes in the number of infected people. This isn't a totally new idea. We've known for a while that certain illnesses can be tracked through the sewer system. In fact, by monitoring sewage, researchers detected and stopped a polio outbreak in Israel in 2013, before any cases were actually reported. Now, similar surveillance is being tried for COVID. Scientists have been testing sewage for the presence of the coronavirus in France, Australia, the Netherlands, and here in America. In fact, Miami-Dade County in Florida started testing its sewage in late March. 
The idea is that it might be useful as an early warning sign for a potential surge in cases, since patients may start shedding the virus before they even know they're sick. The process involves looking for the virus's genetic material in the sewage, which is similar to how those nasal swab tests work. In Florida, they've seen some pretty big swings that haven't necessarily corresponded to jumps in reported cases. But last week, Yale University scientists examining primary sewage sludge, that's all the uh, solids that settle in wastewater, Anyway, they were looking at the sludge from the New Haven, Connecticut area and suggested that the concentration of coronavirus genetic material was an indicator of how many new cases would appear in the area seven days later, and also an indicator of how many hospitalizations there would be three days later. You might have seen these charts floating around the internet this week. They show two almost identical curves separated in time by a few days. One curve is for the concentration of genetic material, and the other for COVID cases. Now, that was just a preprint, meaning that the Yale scientists' work hasn't yet been peer-reviewed, and some statisticians have questioned how they've handled the data. While there may be a trend, the lead time might not be as great as the scientists claim in their paper. So more work needs to be done on using poop to track COVID cases. But the hope is that eventually we'll be able to use this tool to help pinpoint roughly where new infections might be spreading and stop new outbreaks before they get out of control. That's it for this episode of Podcast 19. If you have questions you'd like us to answer on the show, email us a voice memo at askpodcast19 at gmail.com. That's askpodcast19 at gmail.com. I'm Anna Rothschild. Our producer is Jake Arlo. Chadwick Matlin is our executive producer. Okay, we gotta wrap this up because Jake wants to get back to her reality TV guilty pleasure. Too hot to handle. (laughs) 